0: Welcome. Welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nike Anani and I'm your host. So I had this amazing conversation with an incredible lady. Her name is Gabrielle Gay. She is a director of emerging market strategy for a family office called Kensington Capital out in Boston, Massachusetts. And what I love about Gabrielle is she has very multifaceted, diverse background in terms of her career, but also has a lot of on the ground, roll up your sleeves, get the dirt in between your nails kind of experience in the sense that this family office set up a university project in Ghana and Gabrielle oversaw that project. So we spoke a lot about how do you develop and use partnerships to build ecosystems? that will bring about impact change in a very sustainable way. So I'd encourage you to tune in, enjoy, share the love and take care. Thank you. Hi Gabrielle, welcome to The Connected Generation. I'm excited to have you today.
1: Well, thank you, Nike. It's a pleasure to be here. Cool.
0: So tell us more about you. What was your journey? How did you get to where you are today?
1: Well, I think with that question, it probably makes sense to let you know where I am um, currently, and then I retrace my steps of how I got here. And I work for a private family office in Boston, and the family office of my in-laws is called Kensington Capital Holdings. And about six years ago, my husband and I relocated from San Francisco and did the coast-to-coast move back to Boston. To go back a little bit further, I graduated from the Utah State University in chemistry and economics, and even there, you can kind of see a division of interest. And economics proved to be a little bit more of a profitable and a promising pathway for me. And so I followed that and gave up kind of some ideas of wanting to be a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. And with that, I had a series of jobs in asset management work at a bank that I was involved with lived overseas a little bit and realized that I was very interested in international business, international something. Mm -hmm. And I just dove a little bit deeper into that and into that interest. I ended up going to INSEAD, an international business school outside of Paris and had a phenomenal experience there, very eye-opening, and that opened a lot of doors for me. Mm -hmm. INSEAD isn't the best known school in the U.S. So it was more geared towards opening up doors on an international basis.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: After NCAD was back in San Francisco, ended up working at Gap Corporate in their international digital strategy division. And then from there, we moved back to Boston and I took a role inside the family office. That's like what my resume would tell you, but what I am myself doing in almost every job that I've had is seeing something that should be done that's not being done. Hmm. Or like phase entities or institutions or businesses could doing things a little bit better and I would just hmm. set up and start doing it and it would almost become like one of my primary roles. Hmm. And so even at Gap Corporate, they were very interested in the time I was there at like these emerging fashion models, fast fashion particularly, where they weren't competitive enough. And so I started studying those models and understanding, okay, how could Zara add take a concept and get it on the store shelves in like seven weeks it took GAF like nine months to do that and so i started doing something they called competitive intelligence and it was super fun and very valuable to the corporation and so likewise the Kensington capital family office i started working on some kind of projects for my mother and father-in-law in west africa uh, nothing Specific in my resume would say that I would be successful at those things, but they needed help and I was actually willing and able to do it. So I stepped in. And in the last seven years, it's been a really interesting journey because I've been on the ground so much in West Africa, primarily Ghana, building a college and uh, from nothing. Wow. wow. And that's been a huge effort and a huge learning experience. And I would just say, it's made me rethink their whole kind of impact approach and portfolio and now we're doing a whole bunch of fun and interesting things. Whereas we I had just started out in more of a straight sort of philanthropic position. Now now it's much more dynamic forward looking sort of segment that I ran in portfolio that I oversee.
0: Wow. Really interesting from fashion to family office. You've had a very cool career so far. Along your journey, what challenges did you face?
1: That's an interesting question. I would never say that I totally felt like there were challenges that I couldn't overcome. Some of the challenges were, I grew up in a small town in the western United States in a state called Utah. I did not go to a remarkable undergraduate school. I did very well in this state university. So that was very atypical. And then I bounced around a fair amount in my professional life, I moved from banking to asset management to that corporate. And there were some times where my husband was moving a lot and all I was doing is kind of picking up our lives and moving it to the next place. And that's a lot of work, but you don't put that on a resume. And so it's not this very linear professional experience that a lot of people think that you must have. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why I brought out that commonality is like, I always, no matter my job, doing the things I thought would be valuable to the firm or the entity that weren't being done.
2: Mm.
1: And I'm very interested in jobs where I have some freedom to be creative and some autonomy to take some risk and do things differently. Mm. And that's one reason why GAP was great in certain ways, but not great in other ways. And I knew that probably wasn't going to be a long-term thing for me. I'm just very interested in, being able to build and try new things. And so if I didn't have that, that was always a challenge in the situation. So those were some of the the challenges and certainly working overseas in Africa. I think every day, like work there is just overcoming challenges, right? There's just (laughs) so much bedrock you've got to break through and so many things I didn't know and still don't know and don't understand. And so every day is A bunch of challenges that my team and I seek to overcome and understand better and maybe navigate around or over those sorts of things. So it's actually a very fun adventure. I think life without challenges would be pretty boring.
0: Indeed. Indeed. And you seem to have a life skill for, as you said, just being able to do things that you haven't done before and just rolling with the punches and adapting to situations. And so, through your work, you spend a lot of your time on the continent in Africa, and you mentioned you built a university. How was that experience? What was the backstory of the philanthropic and impact mm-hmm. work on the continent?
1: Well, you know that there has to be a backstory, right? It's a pretty random thing yeah. to drop down.
0: From exactly. Boston to Ghana, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my father-in-law is a super interesting guy. His name's Bob Jay, and he was one of the early guys Bain capital. And he opened up their European offices and just was kind of a power horse for Bain. And in 2004, his church asked him to take kind of a leadership or a three-year leadership position in Africa, leading some of the missionary efforts there. And so mm-hmm. he left gang capital. Everybody told him he was absolutely crazy, probably including his wife and some of his children. (laughs) And he moved to Ghana. And from that base, he was in charge of the church missionary work in West African countries. So living there, they had done humanitarian work in Africa largely for several years before actually living there. But when you live there, you start to see things at a totally different level and with new eyes. And so I'm sure doing everything he needed to for the church responsibility, I think he had kind of a piece of his mind was saying, oh my gosh, how do I solve this problem? He was taking the skills that he had in his professional life and putting them to use, trying to help people in West Africa. And I think that that experience profoundly affected both my father-in-law, Bob, and his wife, Lynette. And they made many friends, developed networks there, both in many communities. And I think they posed the question, said, if, if we really want to impact and sow the seeds of change, what would you have us do? And they said, well, education is the change maker and it's out of the world's best education is out of reach for 99% of the population here. Mm-hmm. And so if you wanted to have a large impact, you would go to school. So they said, okay, we can do that. Kind of school, what program, where do we start? And so early in the 2000s, I think this kind of, they conceived of this idea. And so it's now called Ensign College of Public Health. We offer a master's degree in public health. We'll shortly be adding on some other graduate level degrees. But the whole idea was, rather than, we're just making the world's best education accessible to everyday folks in Africa, particularly West Africa and Ghana. And it was conceived on a philanthropic basis. I think my parents-in-law just thought they'd fund it and bring in some partners. But in the early days of the school, I, I spent much of my time there. I picked up an academic partner. I can build businesses and hire people and think through that strategy. But academia is a completely different animal, and it has its own politics and its own processes and methods. And so there was a fellow professor, Steve Alder, who ran the division of public health at a university in the United States. And he came in as an academic partner. And so the two of us traveled to Ghana. I remember it was the first time within 2006. And this campus was, at that point, 16 acres. It was kind of half-conceived. And it's just Because, you know, a lot of projects, they're really well-intentioned, but the actual driving it to completion and full execution, like a lot of times where the ball gets dropped, right? And so without any background or anything saying that we'd be successful, we just started to push. And I guess in some ways, being ignorant has its benefits because you just don't know where the world is going to say no, or it's not done that way. You just, you see what things need to be done and you just start doing it. So. We did that and eight months later we had awesome faculty. We'd relocated from the US and the UK. We had fifty students. We had accreditation. The buildings were built. Wow. Like everything was good. And so we have a really beautiful world class campus that's now fifty acres, not just sixteen, because it turns out wow. we didn't even own the land that the original edifices were built on. that we've got four housing blocks, administration buildings, dining halls, conference centers, just infirmary. So it's quite the complex and that's just the outside, but we're in our seventh year. We've had a really tough year with COVID, but I think one of the most pivotal moments in the development of Enzyme College was when my colleagues, Steve Alder, and I were looking at how to make this successful, not for just three or five years, but in perpetuity. And my background in business was saying, if there's some sort of revenue model that we can put in that will
2: sustain.
1: Mm-hmm. And the choice had to be made whether we maintained it as a pure philanthropic play or mm-hmm. whether we shifted it into a business. And we made the decision to treat it like a business, like a startup. And we took all of the original kind of philanthropic funding and we treated it as seed funding. Mm-hmm. And that imposed on our decision making mm-hmm. a whole new lens to look at things. I mean, it forced transparency and accountability a whole new series of characteristics from our employees and from ourselves and a discipline in how we manage resources and make decisions and honestly I will tell you that made all of the difference Hmm. and it ignited in me kind of I think a very strong opinion about where philanthropy is appropriate and good because certainly there are cases where there's acute needs that needs to be addressed Mm -hmm. but philanthropy like is not a vehicle for sustainability because the moment money dries up, then a lot of times the initiatives dry up. And frankly, my personality is is not that I want to go pound the pavement looking for the next dollar and knowing that if I can't raise that money or find the fund that our activities don't have support anymore. I would much rather try to figure out a business model that's going to support this and put my energy there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we'll take donor dollars and we've got to really... Amazing set of partners and partnerships that we're nurturing, but it's with a business mindset. And it's really become kind of philosophy of development, is increasingly taking on new projects and new wind, at both in West Africa and, and now it's even come back to the United States and influencing a business school here in the United States, how they want to structure opportunities, global opportunities for their students. So we're building. At the University of Utah in February, we launched this center called the Center for Business Health and Prosperity. It was very wow. much inspired by our work in Ghana,
2: wow. how
1: yeah. you really drive authentic development through entrepreneurship, thinking about more of an ecosystem approach to solutions and how you bring in the appropriate stakeholders on the ground to really drive decisions. So it's interesting wow. that you can go to West Africa, kind of pioneer something from scratch, and then it's comes back to the United States. is something wholly new and inspiring. And I think what the world needs, Nikkei, okay? We're just excited for the partnerships and projects that we're bringing in.
0: Wow. Wow. I loved when you were talking about sustainability, because as you were describing the backstory to development of the projects in Ghana, all I was thinking about was this would have been a lot of capital. And if this is donor capital, how do you sustain this? Even operating and maintaining the facility on an ongoing basis, that costs money. And how do you build this in a way that's sustainable? And I was thinking, I know many next-gens are very passionate about creating social solutions, whether it's through impacts, through philanthropy, and what have you, but the sheer magnitude of the need and the financial resources required and the fear of not being able to raise um, sustainable finance, whether it's through philanthropy or, as you mentioned, as a business, might put them off. So I really loved when you started speaking about the sustainability piece. You said that instances where philanthropy is appropriate and where it's not. Can you speak more about that?
1: Absolutely. So there are absolutely in our... World at places of acute need where philanthropy can go in in a very targeted way and relieve that need, whether it's a group of refugees that need food and supplies. That's where philanthropy Mm -hmm. or after natural disasters, those are places where philanthropy is the right tool Mm -hmm. that can address those needs. But anything that wants to have sustainable impact over time, Mm -hmm. philanthropy, I don't think it's the perfect tool. You can often blend it in to a model. It can be a piece. Mm -hmm. But if you're solely reliant on that, I don't think that in the long term, your initiative will be sustainable. In academia, you could use philanthropy to build an endowment and then use that endowment to fund the academic entity. But an endowment throws off about 4% a year, which Mm -hmm. is not much. So you're locking up a huge pot of money. And that 4%... Usually you can get about 8% interest on that part of funds and 4% goes in to maintain the corpus and 4% is thrown off the fund activities. So it's not a very efficient use of funds. Opportunity, so,
0: opportunity cost.
1: So maybe if it's interesting, I'll take the lid off our business model a little bit and share with you a little bit Please. about what's driving. And to be honest, we're still experimenting and trying new things and finding out what works best, what are most efficient ways to go into certain markets and things and certain partnerships. But there were a few mandates that came with this campus when we took it over from my parents-in-law. And we didn't take it over. They're still very much involved. But when Professor Alder and I took it on as a project, they wanted the academics to be the highest standard in the world and they wanted it affordable to the average West African. So that was something that we had that will always be. They are a huge proponent of community engagement. And we do that through building on the ground partnership. And the other mandate is that we have to approach problems and impact from a capacity building perspective. And so to back up, I'll just say two things about my parents-in-law. And this was kind of a breakthrough moment. My father-in-law is an innovator. He's always just driving models to get increased efficiency and, and looking for new ways to do things. My mother-in-law is an absolute humanitarian. If it mm. breathes, she like is loving it and trying to take care of it. And so when you put them together, they're a really dynamic duo. And often I've seen in their philanthropic portfolio that the different entities that they funded or supported went to one of them. It never, often both of them And so that's one of the really fun things is I looked at my parents' mom and said, you guys are amazing together. You're awesome apart, but you're even more amazing together. And so we've taken bits of each of them and really sewn those into the fabric of Enzine College. So one of the realities that we faced with the college is it can never be completely supported on African dollar. We pride ourselves in a really beautiful world-class campus and that those are really hard to maintain in Africa. I remember one time in the very beginning when I didn't know how much upkeep was required. I think I wasn't there for like six or nine months and I came back and it looked like I had been gone for like five years, right? It's just things just, they can fall apart very, very quickly. And so we put in a lot of uh, structure and teams to maintain all of those things cost money. So the business model and I think next gen will understand this education. I think the whole model of education is being rethought and sitting in a classroom in Boston in the UK or whatever that student is and, and learning about something that happens on the other side of the world. Well, that's like, it's good, but we yeah. typically done. But yeah. I think some people want immersed experiential learning experiences. So we're seeing off of that to bring in study abroad. And student groups and even business partners from overseas who want to learn about right now is specifically public health in an emerging market and in a really dynamic place like West Africa. So rather than learning about it in textbook, they can come and study at our campus and we'll involve them in the plethora of partnerships that we have on the ground so they can get that experiential learning. And so, I also think one of the future looking things for education is bring together students with incredibly diverse backgrounds and that there's a value in doing that and that those perspectives mm-hmm. will influence one another. And so mm-hmm. if I could put together a student group that has its bases from all over the United States and bring them and pair them with a student group from West Africa, I mean, it okay, like, wouldn't you say there's so much more of a dynamic
0: learning environment for everyone? Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Everyone gains thats no. Yeah.
1: And I think that's a total misconception that unfortunately a lot of people have in the Western world. And it sounds silly to even say it now. I'm ashamed of it, but some folks think that the Western world has all the solutions or they've figured things out.
2: Mm. And
1: we can help the world by just sharing our knowledge with them. Mm-hmm. And that's a super patronizing thing. And it's absolutely wrong because we don't understand the challenges that are inherent in those sorts of economies and communities and countries. So unless you're those stakeholders to the table and then bring whatever knowledge and resource that's valuable to the table and then combining those in a similar, like diverse setting, then the ideas will never really stick. And so. Our posture is very much to say, like, the Western world has so much to learn from Africa. Let's get you over there, pair you with entities and organizations and individuals who will teach you so much. And that has been my experience. It's been the experience of the people that we have chosen to work with. And I think in those very equitable, even partnerships, there's so much to be learned on both sides. And I think that really is the pathway forward for a lot of countries,
0: including my own. That's just, you put it so well, and it really is about diversity of thought. And we all together, when we come together with our various perspectives, we all gain There's a synergy that happens. And quite often, like you said, it's nonsense when some people come with the perspective that the West has so much to teach. It almost delegitimizes what we have to offer. and it's very easy to internalize that story and always want to be at the mercy of the West. But I think you are completely right in that. We all have something to offer each other, to teach each other. And we all have something to learn from one another as well.
1: I agree. It sounds like a platitude, but it's absolutely true And in those partnerships. The thing that is, I think, so remarkable about Africa is there is an energy there that I've not found anywhere else in the world and in the u.s you can bring a team together and try to work on a problem but the western world has a rigidity to it there's things you don't do and there are things that just are not thought of because you don't have the freedom the structure is so rigid and it's been built and developed over generations and i think africa the energy is there to think like what could be, right? And to think outside of those constraints that the Western world often puts on thought in a conscious or even unconscious way. And so building college in West Africa, there's no blueprint for what we've been trying to do. There's no person or group that I can look at and say, well, we're just going to do what they did. Mm -hmm. You're charting new ground. And in that, there are challenges that There's also the wonderful aspect that you can be creative and cobble together the solution that will actually build a new model of education. And it's not going to look like the Western model or even the model that existed in West Africa right now. And so we're pushing ministers and accreditation boards to do things they've never done before. And sometimes they're a little bit nervous because they're not used to change. But that's what's got to be done. And once you tap into that, there's so much energy and it's so fun to have the freedom to try new things and honestly to fail sometimes and pivot and try other new things and bring in new partners and think new ways. There's they are not the constraints in West Africa that I've found in other parts of
0: the world where I've worked. So it's super fun. That's amazing. It's the pioneers' life, really. As you were talking and saying, the energy and the less constraints, I was just thinking, yeah, it's because in Africa, you're often pioneering something. And it can be quite intimidating, but it also can be very exhilarating as well.
1: Absolutely. And the thing is, we're all in this together. When you put together a team, and we've all never done this before, and you just start to iterate and think about how we can build things, the ideas always come from the people who know the environment way better than I do or, you know, the Western part of the team does. And there's incredible energy and creativity there that had never really been unleashed or valued or in the ways that I think that these new models can utilize. And so it's just once you can tap into that and give folks the freedom to create and it's okay to try things and have them not work. That's not their typical experience. But if you can give that to them, then there's like untold energy, and the
0: world needs that. I love that. I love that. I just have one last question for you. And that is you mentioned when in developing the university in Ghana, there was a shift from seeing it as a philanthropic project to seeing it as a business, and how that transition kind of changed everything in terms of driving efficiency and transparency and accountability. Can you speak more about that That transition and what metrics did you start measuring that you weren't measuring before under the philanthropic model? Elaborate a little bit more on that transition.
1: Absolutely. So the shift was initially with my colleague Steve Alder and I, we saw some of the shortcomings of the philanthropic model and some of those are extremely difficult to know how to deal with. And one of them was just this culture of dependency. A philanthropic model often is like somebody is here and they're giving to a group that's down here. And inherent in that model is I give because I have to you who doesn't have. And like I said, there's appropriate circumstances for that. But it means that you're not measuring in detail and analyzing in detail where all of your funds go into what impact they're having. And you can support this dependency model, which is not good for anybody. And I will tell you that's one of the hardest things that we hit up against on almost a regular basis in Ghana is people see a big beautiful campus and they see some western money behind it and they just want money. They just see us I think as a dispensary of resources and that's what we're good hmm. for because typically that's what we thought we were good for.
2: Hmm.
1: It's, it's our job to hand out money or that's what how we can solve problems. And the truth is because money is seldom the answer to problems. Hmm. It's often I think we've been much more successful in our shift to a business model to say, look at the allocation of resources and rather than ask for additional resources, just reassign the resources or reallocate them. So in that shift, we're really moving from a dependency mindset to more of a self-reliant mindset. And that's a shift that is still ongoing to really push people to say, hey, you you have the solution. In the beginning, they'd often come to us with their problems and challenges. Honestly, I, you, I have no idea how to solve most of the problems. And if I thought I did, then I was wrong. And so throwing that back to the group and say, okay, let's write this down and Really understand the origins of the challenge and how we can overcome it together. Is money the answer? Is it maybe just a small part of the answer? And so we've instituted a very rigorous budgeting process and oversight and accountability. Organogram is a big deal at our college who people report to and who's accountable for what. Mm -hmm. And in normal non COVID times, I was over there at least every quarter or more often. And we've trained up a team over the last seven years to understand what we're looking for, the standards by which we operate, et cetera. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so it's taken some time because in the beginning, we brought in some more mature leadership, but they really weren't willing to go on this journey with us to this new kind of innovative model. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of self-exited and it was our younger leaders that we've been able to train over the last seven years that get it, understand the vision and they're part of the vision. And we've really, I, I think, trained them and have an exceptional leadership. It's a very high-touch sort of thing with a lot of oversight and accountability. And you've got to have structure then that reinforce all of those things.
0: That's incredible. Just one last question. Are you excited about the future? And what do you see in Horizon?
1: I'm uh, super excited about the future. I think with COVID, we've all had a chance to sit back a little bit and analyze. Personally, things that should be done a different way and professionally. And what I am most excited about is how we can use partnerships to build ecosystems and to look at challenges through kind of multifaceted lens Mm -hmm. and utilize partnerships to affect change and resource those partnerships through education and training and mentorship and money where it's needed but go after those challenges in a big way with lots of partners. So I think the future is exceptionally bright. And I think we've seen with new eyes some of the blind spots and shortcomings in our societies. So in that way, I think the way I've heard many people phrase it is COVID revealed certain things that were kind of lurking beneath the surface and it's accelerated certain trends. And so this end towards digital that has so many implications as it bridges the divide between the developing world and the emerged markets and the emerging markets, et cetera. So super excited about those things.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much. If anyone would like to get hold of you, how best can they reach you?
1: You can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way to connect. So Gabrielle Gay at LinkedIn. So anyways, thank you so much, Nikkei. Thank, thank you so much. for all that you're doing. And I think big
0: things are in store for you and your efforts as well. Thank you. Ooh, I loved that conversation. I wish we had like three hours (laughs) to delve into the various subtopics that came up. There were so many, so many. But I think what I left that conversation with the most that really stuck with me was when Gabrielle was talking about the beauty of Africa. About how there's rigidity in the Western world and how we have this freedom. We have this energy on the continent to think of what could be rather than what has been done to be unboxed. There's no established blueprint. And it really got me thinking about when she said, there's so much the world can learn from Africa. And indeed there is. But unfortunately, for the longest time, there's been a narrative that Africa needs to be rescued. Africa needs to be rescued financially, educationally, in every sphere of life. But I really do agree with her that we have so much beauty to offer the world, whether it's the richness of our culture, the depth of our values, the resilience of our people, the sheer innovativeness and resourcefulness of our economies. I think there's just so much beauty that we have to offer the world. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take good care and God bless you.